Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Good morning. My name is Matt Blazer, a pastor here of the barn. And last time Mike read, someone described the difference between his reading and my reading, and I don't remember what vehicles they used, but one was a steady, slow, delightful vehicle. That was Mike. And one was a bit high speed. That was me. I love the Psalms. Um, if you've been with us for any length of time, you probably know that. Over a year, you would know that I'm very, very, very fond of the Psalms. Uh, a class in the Psalms at the University of Missouri by a visiting Presbyterian uh, professor, but also um, minister Bill Young, um, class in Psalms and Wisdom Literature, changed my mind about my life's vocation. 
Um, there were all sorts of signs that I was going to go in ministry, but I didn't see them. <laughs> and what I long to do myself, and what I long to lead us in doing, is trusting the Psalms to guide us in the with God life, especially with respect to answering the Lord about what it is like to be us as we follow him in this world. And there are literal and metaphorical seasons of life, and the Psalms embrace that, the Psalms own it, and the Psalms answer God with respect to it. Uh, that phrase is one that I learned from Eugene Peterson. I'll, I'll, I'll quote him a little bit later. His, as I continue to read and explore his books, I am so thankful. Uh, he passed away around a year or so ago. Um, but his book, entitled Answering God, the first half of it is perhaps the most profound description of the Psalms I've ever encountered. If you already know this, I, sometimes when I preach on the Psalms, people tell me, I, I pray the five Psalms of that day, and I've done that for years. Um, good. I hope the sermon encourages you in that practice. Uh, that's an old way of utilizing the Psalms that over the course of a month, you'll go through all of them. And my favorite thing about praying the day of the month that it is, and then adding 30 until you've prayed five Psalms, is not only that um, you'll end up Utilize, or, uh, being exposed to all 150 psalms. But more importantly, if you go through the psalms sequentially, you won't experience every emotion if you read five of them a day. But if you skip, you will. There are psalms for our solid seasons, our good seasons. But there are more psalms for our dark and wintry seasons. Uh, the most dominant form of psalm is the one of complaint or lament. And then there are psalms um, like this one that are for new beginnings. When we come alive to something. Um, in 2009, I uh, was treated successfully for cancer. And I remember after my last round of chemo, about 10 days after, um, I realized I was starting to recover because I went to a picnic and I ate four bratwursts and I did not feel full. And they were so good. They were marinated in some kind of apple uh, and beer, I think. The apple is what I remember. And I've never eaten more than one bratwurst except that time. That kind of season, literal or metaphorical, for me it was literal because it's going to put some weight back on. I was coming back into health. Um, it was a literal season of new life, new beginnings. Uh, one of the most quoted psalms in addition to, to Psalm 23 is uh, Psalm 30 where the writer probably experienced some profound illness and was healed, and then says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. Um, in addition to Eugene Peterson, the other writer that I'm deeply indebted to, the one that I studied in the 90s, um, is Walter Brueggemann, and it's his scheme that I believe unlocks the Psalms for full use in the life of faith, both individually and corporately. One of the wildest things about the Psalms is that the Israelites prayed them together sang them together. Psalm 88 says, darkness is my closest friend. What a profound move of faith to not only be willing to say that to God, but be willing to say that to God alongside others. Brueggemann's scheme is uh, one around, surrounding the word orientation. So for a solid and a good season, he would call that a psalm of orientation. A darker one like Psalm 88 would be a psalm of disorientation. And one like ours today Psalm 27 would be a psalm of, of reorientation, a song of new life, although I don't think 
The circumstances have changed yet. So perhaps a very profound psalm for us to pray and to allow it to pray us in a season where we can see, as Mike prayed, the light at the end of the tunnel, but it is not here yet. And I write the writer here because we know that this is David, but the Psalms are so different than other books of the Bible in terms of their purpose. And um, sometimes we know the context. I think we know 76 or 78 of the Psalms were written by David, and I think we know the context of maybe 12 or 15 of them. Um, I didn't write those specific stats down. Because the point of the Psalms is to let them guide us in the with God life, especially with respect to answering God. It's not about the context. And most of the time, context is essential for understanding the scriptures. But in the Psalms, it's the co-text. It's uh, the text alongside. And that's why these continue to ring true thousands of years later. Regardless of the situation David was in, we can still pray this way. Jesus prayed this way. And um, we flourish in our relationship with God when we learn to pray this way. David is speaking to his heart at the beginning here about actual experiences and how about actual things happening to him and how he's experiencing them. And for some of us, his heart language is going to be annoying, and yet um, it's important that we learn to speak to our heart. Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York City, says you can either talk to your heart or listen to your heart. Right? We all have internal voices. And, or maybe voice. And we must learn as followers, the Psalms teach us incredibly often to learn to speak back to those voices about what's true. Because what's more true than what the voice says to us is what uh, the Lord says. The writer writes here in verse 2 about what, what it actually, so he's probably surrounded by an, an army, right? But what did he experience that like? In Psalm 27, 2, he says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Is he saying that there were cannibals in Canaan and that's who was surrounding him? No, he, he reached or he, he looked inward and is answering God about what it's like for him who knows that he's called by God to lead the nation of Israel both civically and spiritually. And there's an army around him. And what that feels like to him, what he is experiencing it as, is as though they want to literally eat him. That kind of honesty, that kind of vulnerability is something that is uh, lost on most of us through our very misguided religiousness. So he speaks to his heart. He speaks to his heart about enemies and war and slanderers, those who speak falsely about him. You have enemies. Do you you understand that? Like, it's important to understand that. And then when we go to, first, the Psalms, but more importantly, the teachings of Jesus, they actually have (laughs) more profound power in our life. So we don't feel like we have enemies because spears are are not used as often in 2020 as they were when this was written. But in your place of business, there are people who are not for you. In your family, there are people who are not for you. And I think you know that. And what do Christians do about their enemies? Well, we forgive them. What does that mean? That means 
we long for their good. When you picture that person that's not for you as a follower of Jesus, you're taught by Jesus very directly to forgive them, which doesn't mean you have to be in relationship with them, doesn't mean they're safe, doesn't mean it's wise to be in relationship with them. So those are all other questions. But how do we do it? This is where I think the Psalms are, are both essential to life and mistaught, very frankly. I have become more confident in this year after year. How do we get to a place where we can desire the other's good? I think that's what we think. I think that when we read the teachings of Jesus after the Lord's Prayer about the importance of forgiveness, we both misunderstand forgiveness and think that it's about the, the relationship, relationship reconciliation, which is important, but is a different matter than forgiveness. What Jesus is talking about is not desiring the other's ruin, not paying them back. How do we get there, though? The Psalms teach us to get there through ugly, honest prayer where we say to God, it's a little bit like cannibals are surrounding me. That's what it's like right now, to be your anointed leader. In a covenant, all covenant moves, and and the Israelites were in a covenant with the Lord, and so are you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are under the new covenant that Jeremiah describes in chapter 31 and Ezekiel in chapter 36. And all covenant moves, literal and metaphorical, are moves of bargaining. And this is where we get uncomfortable, don't we? Like, we're not supposed to bargain with God. Right? No, wrong. When we think we're above arguing with God about what will bring him glory, or how our life is going, we're doing, we're, we're, we're trying to be more spiritual than the writers that the Holy Spirit inspired to write the Bible. When you're uncomfortable asking the Lord, how long am I going to have this chronic pain? How long am I going to wrestle with anxiety? How long are you going to allow this pandemic to kill thousands every day? If you think you're above that spiritually, you're doing something profoundly unchristian by attempting to act more spiritually than the writers that the Holy Spirit inspired to, write, to, to create the scriptures. And prayer must be in part about you. I think some of us uh, grow up, I don't, I'll just speak for myself. I grew up mostly praying for other people. That's how I was taught to pray. Not exclusively, but uh, dominantly. And that's good. It's good to pray for others. Um, and yet prayer must also include our own story. We must answer God about what it's like to be us in this world following him. If your prayers are never about you, you're not only missing out on a great deal of intimacy, but you're pretending you don't have enemies, you're pretending you don't have negative thoughts or feelings or beliefs, and you're not... (laughs) Your faith isn't... You're missing out. Can I prove it to you? Look at the first couple of verses of Psalm 27. How many personal pronouns are there? I count 23. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The scriptures, and the point is not for your faith to be this way and that's it. This is actually the path to loving God and neighbor 
is to be honest, to quote Peterson again, to answer God about what it's like to be us in this world and to follow him. My light, my salvation, I fear, my life. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foe, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. One of um, the signs for me that I'm not doing great, that I'm having an average or below average day, are the number of voices inside my head that start with I. I feel unappreciated or uh, unheard or whatever as a pastor or in my own home or, or whatever. And it's, a, it's not a sign of unhealth that I'm supposed to simply break. It's a sign of unhealth that I'm supposed to speak with God about, with the same kind of intimacy and honesty that the writer of Psalm 27 did. You might have noticed since October we changed um, our liturgy. We simplified it a little bit, and there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, and I'm studying that with some elders, and we're thinking about what kind of, you know, because Presbyterians were free. Um, We're not given a liturgy. Um, And one of the things that I've asked that Mike modeled um, and, and did on our behalf earlier was a healing prayer. Um, in addition to confession and calling ourselves to worship and prayers of the people, we're also to expect healing. Gene Peterson writes this, quoting Augustine first and then speaking for himself. St. Augustine found that the best model for developing the integrating experience of past, present, and future was the audible praying of a psalm. The psalmists exercise there and our memories vigorously. Praying is an act of memory. If we confine ourselves to one generational knowledge here, or even worse, to our own conversion experience knowledge, we are impoverished beyond reason. Peterson's an incredible writer, and he's making a number of points at the same time. The first one is that we heal through letting the psalms pray us, and therefore... uh, be oriented by them to our past, present, and future, and the people of God's past, present, and future, which we're engrafted into through Jesus. Faith in a dormant season speaks, we speak to our own heart and then to the Lord about what it's like to be us and to follow him. And in that process, we're healed, perhaps not cured, healed is more profound and it will last forever one of the ways that we enjoy and embrace the healing power of the Holy Spirit in us is to learn to pray this way the writer moves in verse 6 to verse 7 from vulnerable to feeling forsaken what does he say hear me Lord be gracious answer me my heart says to you hide not your servant from me Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Jesus uses similar language when the Father turned his back on him. God will never cast you off, but you will feel as though he has. And what are you supposed to do? Just pretend like it's not happening? 
argue with yourself theologically, or speak first to your own heart and then to God. In, in both of those actions are prayer, by the way. This, this psalm beautifully models going back and forth between looking up and looking down, looking up and looking down. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. You know, the scriptures are reliable. The history that they speak of is verified in archaeology and um, the, the histories of the world that exists this long. They're, they're trustworthy because of the way they were translated. I don't know if you've ever studied the way the Old Testament was copied page to page by the Masoretes. It's not even the oldest text that we have, but the Masoretes were so incredible at the way that they reproduced the text. But the scriptures are also reliable because of how relatable they are to the human condition. Most of you, on some level, can relate to, for my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Whether it was a season or a day, whether it is you see them all the time, they don't hear you, whether you haven't spoken with them in years, you can relate. This 3,000-year-old text, because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and because it's honest about life as we actually experience it, is reliable and trustworthy not only because of the text, textual trustworthiness, but also because it speaks truth about the human condition. At the beginning of the pandemic, I, re- I read a uh, really lovely article called The Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And it, it's about five, six pages, Harvard Business Review, by the man that uh, continued the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and with the blessing of the foundation, uh, wrote a book called The Sixth Stage of Grief. That's a terrible book to be reading right now. I could not e- keep it open, because <laughs> we're still in the grieving. We need to do the other stages first, Right? And grief is a reality that we cannot ignore. Uh, To quote my wife, if we try, it will leak out of our elbows. And spiritually, it's a spiritual skill and perhaps even a discipline. The way Paul talks in Romans 8 about the world until Jesus comes back would teach us that grief is an important skill. Jesus modeled it in his interactions with Mary and Martha and those following him and Lazarus. He, it says Jesus wept. The word is far more profound than that. It is also used in other Greek texts to describe a war horse snorting before battle. He was profoundly upset and knew how to grieve as the most true human who's ever existed. Paul tells the Thessalonians, we do not grieve as those with no hope, meaning... We grieve with hope. Hope that's not optimism. It's confidence. Psalm 27 is a move of confidence in its honesty towards the Lord. So instead of reading the delightful book on uh, grief, I have turned to the Psalms and I've asked them to teach me about grief. You look at Psalm 27, the first three verses could be uh, read as denial. And for a Christian, denial is not, um, it's not necessarily bad. 
It can be dishonest if it's the only move that we make, but it's also an act of resistance against the world under the curse. Any move of bargaining and covenant, or any, any, any asking of the Lord to do something in a covenant is a move of bargaining and is a profound move of spirituality. That's what pink is. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then there are moves of acceptance that he will shelter us and lift us high. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies is an expectation that God will show up and do something. And then in the future, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Is that a move of anger? Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Have you expressed any anger to the Lord? O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. I think that's a statement of depression and profound pain. So I have five highlighters. I couldn't make Microsoft Word give me the exact colors. Almost every psalm that I've interacted with goes through all five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And for a Christian, all of these stages are part of answering God for the world as we experience it, as it is given to us, and what it's like to follow him while the creation continues to groan for his return. The writer here is, continue, is waiting on the Lord. Verse 11 is so disorienting for us, isn't it? Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. We like that. That's pleasant spirituality. Because of my enemies. The Psalms, employed the way they are meant to be, reminds us how much our faith matters in real time that there are the people that are not for us. And we talk to the Lord honestly about that in the hopes of being able to love them well and forgive them, but also honestly. I appreciate verse... 13 and 14 a great deal because while this is a psalm of confidence, while this is a psalm of new orientation, David is trusting and his circumstances have not yet changed. This whole psalm goes up and down and up and down. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm picturing him praying that with head lifted. And I hope that you know how to pray that way. And then he bows his head, perhaps. Wait for the Lord, he says to his heart. Be strong 
and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is all possible because of the work of Christ who frees us into relationship with God, which is not a relationship of, of religious actions, but a relationship of honesty, whereby we're freed into love of God and of neighbor. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise and, and thank you that you guide us in dark and dormant seasons. Jesus, we ask that you help us to remember that you also experienced grief and immense sorrow and pain. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in the with God life for your glory and the good of neighbors and for the healing of our own hearts. Guide us to pray the Psalms, guide us to let them pray us, and then teach us to be Psalm writers. Amen.